Recorded live. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays at 6 p.m. Pacific. have denied internet access for their people during civil strife. The FCC sees in-use commercial shortwave frequencies right after the September 11th attacks. No one communication system can be dependent on to be there when you need information. You need choices. You need a KU band free to air satellite system from ABR. The ABR system includes a receiver, an LNB, and a 75-centimeter dish. All you need to get on your own is the coaxial cable. The system is delivered to your door for $149.99. That's right, delivered for $149.99. That's the shipping and the system, $149.99. Call 541-225-4659. That's 541-225-4659. Or visit AmericanVoiceRadio.com and click the satellite system.
Oh, there I am, yeah. Man, these faders are driving me crazy. Well, good evening, all. This is the Frank Report. I'm your host, Francis Stephan. You're listening right here on American Voice Radio Network. It is the 2nd of April, Thursday, 2015. And uh, it's about nine minutes after 8 p.m. That's all true where you're at. We are, in fact, live. Go to theamericanvoice.com or americanvoiceradio.com. Everything you need to know about the network's there. Look for the chat link. You'll find it. It's easy. All the instructions. Go in there. You can participate in the show, or you can just chat with the other folks in there. All right, let's get to some things. Now let's get to something that probably won't really uh, make a difference to anybody in America. We'll start with that because it's nice and easy, huh? You know, there's plenty more bad news. But uh, China's land reclamation is creating a great wall of sand in the South China Sea, a top U.S. official says, leading to some serious questions on its intentions. U.S. Pacific Fleet Commander Admiral Harry Harris made the comments in a speech in Australia on Tuesday night. He said by pumping sand onto coral reefs and adding concrete, China had created over four square, it's 1.5 square miles of artificial land mass. 1.5 square miles. Wow. China has overlapping claims with neighbors in the South China Sea. So basically, I guess China's saying, oh, okay, well, we'll we'll just start making our own islands. How about that? What do I care, huh? But they got a picture of it here, and it's it's basically just a little sandbar uh, island uh, that they're doing there. Recent months, images have emerged of Chinese construction on reefs in the Spratly Islands to create artificial islands with facilities that could potentially be for military use, including an airstrip. Well, I count on it, man. Look, the Chinese, this is just, you know, historically, I mean, they could always change their minds, I I guess, but China's basically been concerned with their own sphere of influence, Asia, the South China Sea, you know, they want to be able to uh, be in control of all that, and the U.S. military wants to control the whole world. Now, China doesn't have you know, 15 super aircraft carriers, all right, to, uh, what do they call it, uh, project power. So, I mean, wouldn't it be a lot cheaper just to get a bunch of sand? And maybe it ain't sand. You know, maybe China's cleaning up some of its toxic waste dumps and dumping it on these coral reefs to build themselves a few uh, airstrips. A few airstrips made out of that stuff on the coral reefs would be a lot cheaper than building aircraft carriers, wouldn't it? Think about it. And if you're not looking to project power everywhere in the world, you wouldn't need aircraft carriers. I mean, imagine. 
if the United States wasn't running around the world bullying everybody on the planet into doing what it wants? Would we need aircraft carriers? How many aircraft carriers would we need? Ah, we might want to keep one just to, you know, have one. We can go if we need to go somewhere. But, uh, you know, basically, if somebody attacks us and we need to attack them back, well, you know what? Most of our airplanes can make it to wherever they got to go, and the ones that can't make it there can be refueled in the air. We really don't need aircraft carriers even to attack another country that might attack us. But see, what you need aircraft carriers for is to run around the world and occupy other people's countries. To have a hammer over their head, like, you don't start doing what we want you to do, we'll start raining fire down on you. How about that? Because we can do it any time, because we got an aircraft carrier parked off your coast, because we're the big bully that wants it our way, and we'll kill you all if we don't get it our way. Man, you know, I grew up in this country during the Cold War, and I was, uh, you know, just as brainwashed as everybody is now, it seems, that, oh, the evil Russians, the Soviet Union, uh, we've got to, you know, we've got to do this, the them back because they want to take over the world. You know, we really got to we really got to look at that I that whole idea and think, gosh, how stupid was I to believe that crap? Okay, we're dealing with cultures here. Here's the Soviet Union. Now I'm not saying they were good guys or anything of the sort. I'm just saying here's a place that built something called the Iron Curtain. Okay, is that something that an aggressive, occupying country that runs around the world beating people into submission and taking over their country does? Build an iron curtain? No. Because that's like a wall. Walls are just defensive, you know? Then we are dealing with the Chinese. There's still people that, well, you know, the Chinese, they're going to come into Mexico and then they're going to attack the United States from Mexico. Look, I don't doubt there's some Chinese troops in Mexico, but I don't think China has any intentions of attacking mainland the United States. What would be the purpose? They've already taken all our industry. They've already taken everything that's worth anything. The frackers have poisoned all the water. You know, Monsanto's poisoned all the crops. They've taken all the industry. Gee, well, what's left to come and take, folks? Is there anything here they'd want? Is there anything here you'd want if you were China? Oh, and then there's the whole idea that this is a culture that built the Great Wall. Oh, wait, another wall. Now, is there somebody out there that can actually say building a wall is is an aggressive act? (laughs) Is there? Because I don't know. I've always looked at walls and fences and things of that nature as 
pretty much purely defensive. So, you know, here we have the Chinese, and they probably are going to build these artificial areas to put airfields. Seems like a good idea. I mean, and where are these? Where is this located? Well, it's located between the Philippines and Vietnam in the South China Sea. Wow. Now, doesn't that seem like a pretty good place for an airfield for the Chinese? Doesn't that seem fairly self-defensive, seeing as how uh, we pretty much operate our Navy out of the Philippines? Oh, I know. They gave the base back and all that stuff, but we still operate out of there. They're concerned about it. Hey, maybe they'll use it as a listening post, like we do, uh, oh, what's that place out in the middle of the, uh, oh, man, I forget what it is. It's it's the place where the British kicked all the indigenous people out, killed them, killed all their livestock, stole their place to live so they could give it to the United States for a military staging area, they say, when really what it is is a listening post. Oh, sure, they've got equipment there and such, but it's a listening post. Diego Garcia, that's right. You realize people lived there before the United States moved in? Do you realize what they did to those people? So, I don't know. It seems a a lot more benevolent to go find a coral reef, dump some stuff on it, and build a uh, new island for a new air base rather than, oh, I don't know, find indigenous people that you want their place and kill them and murder them and, you know, kill all their animals and move them out. Yeah. See, that's how the United States operates. Look, I'm not a big fan of China but I'm less of a fan of the government in Washington, D.C. I'm telling you, you know, it's, it's a darn shame. But you know what? This, the government in Washington, D.C., the United States government, you know, being an American born and raised in this country, it's like finding out that your brother, Jeffrey Dahmer, Okay? What? Really? Yeah, Uncle Sam's a serial killer. You know what? It's not a joke, and it's not an exaggeration. Uncle Sam is a serial killer. You know, so we can either sit there and say, well, yeah, but whatever Uncle Sam does is okay because, well, he's family. He's uncle, you know. He's just that crazy uncle, and we got to accept him because why? Family, uh, blood's thicker than water, and anything anybody in our family does is okay because, by golly, they're family, and family is everything, and family, family, family. Ah, uh, yeah, but he's a serial killer. Oh, well, that's too bad. We still love him. Really? Well, I don't. Uncle Sam's a serial killer, and he needs to be put down. That's my opinion. Now, you know, I don't have the ability to do it. If I did, it'd already be done.
So China here, they say, is building artificial land by pumping sand. They keep saying sand. I have my doubts that it's sand. On to live coral reefs, some of them submerged, and paving over them with concrete. China has now created uh, 1.5. Uh, they're creating a great wall of sand with dredges and bulldozers over the course of months. He said that considering China's pattern of, now get this, pattern of provocative actions towards smaller claimant states in the South China Sea, the scope of the building raised serious questions about Chinese intentions. The row over territory in the South China Sea has escalated in recent years. The Philippines has filed a complaint with the UN's Permanent Court of Arbitration, but China says it will not engage with the case. <laughs> Good for them. Uh, let's see, folks. One more good point. One more gold star for China. Look, you know, we might not like what China does, but at least China is acting in its own self-interest. Instead of running to the UN and going, oh, what do you bunch of commies think? Huh? What do you think? What are we allowed to do? Like the United States on its knees all the time with its mouth open at the UN. Are you sick of the U.N. yet, folks? You know what? I got to like any country that says, yeah, go ahead and take whatever you want to the U.N. We're not going to bother with the United Nations. We're not even going to show up. You got nothing to say to us. In Vietnam, anti-Chinese violence broke out last year after China moved a drilling rig into disputed waters of the uh, Paracel Islands. Well, now, where they are is, uh, if you look on a map, folks, you got to look and say, well, you know what? This is, uh, how does Vietnam claim that? Because it's just as close to China as it is Vietnam. It's kind of out in the middle of the South China Sea. I guess anything I can see is mine, and uh, until somebody bigger comes and says, no, I can see it too, and it's mine. Last year, responding to a BBC report on the land reclamation, China's foreign ministry spokesman said China's operation in the Spratly Islands fell entirely within China's sovereignty and are totally justifiable. Asked whether the reclamation was for commercial or military use, he replied that it was mainly for the purpose of improving the working and living conditions of people stationed on these islands. Stationed. Military to me. Well, hey, you know what? I got to say, I really don't care what happens in the South China Sea. I don't care if China takes over Japan. Or South Korea or anything. I don't care. Do you care? Do you care if China takes over Taiwan? How is that going to affect your life? Really, let me ask you. Let's say tomorrow China says, you know, that's it. We've had enough of Taiwan, and uh, we're taking it back. We played nice long enough. We're done. What would it matter? Honestly, what would it matter? Would it matter? Would it matter to you? How do you think it would change your life? 
I don't think it would change your life at all, except, of course, the United States military would say, well, we got to go fight a war. We got to have your children to toss in a meat grinder. Well, we got to, you know, oh, hey, add another war to the list. But I doubt it would make much difference. Who cares where we get our cheap plastic crap? Does it really matter if it's from Taiwan or China? Does it matter if we call it Taiwan or China or South Korea or whatever else? Who cares? You know, we've got all these nonsense stories about the South China Sea and all this other crap about China. Who cares? Why isn't anybody looking at the southern border? How come nobody's looking at the fact that Barack Obama and his Department of Homeland Security, which, by the way, the homeland is Canada, the United States, Mexico, and all of Central America. Gee, did they tell you that when they created the Department of Homeland Security? Did they tell you that, oh, and by the way, the homeland is North and Central America? Did they tell you, oh, by the way, we're getting rid of all the national borders because it's all one big happy homeland? Did they tell you that? No, they didn't. But guess what? That's what it is. Nobody's worried about that. Nobody cares about that. You've got these hawks on TV like the tomato, Bill Riley, Bill O'Reilly. Yeah, the O is for the O at the end of tomato. Bill Riley, Bill O'Reilly, Bill Tomato Riley. Yeah, Warhawks. Yeah, we got yeah, we got to do something about them Chinese. Yeah, sure we do. Why don't we do something about the Mexicans? You know, another thing, what else is in the news? Oh, yes. Oh, how could I miss it? It's all over the place. Oh, that horrible, terrible Indiana. How dare they? How dare they actually come up with a rule that says, listen, if you don't want to serve somebody at your restaurant or store or whatever else, oh, gee, how could they possibly say that your religious freedom counts just as much as a sodomite's right to sodomy. Huh? How dare they? Oh, yes, the homos all around the country are got their panties in a bundle, including these homosexual CEOs. That's right, folks. You know what? Salesforce, you ever heard of Salesforce CEO Mark Beninoff? Yeah. Well, he's giving... He's giving his employees $50,000 to relocate to another state if they don't feel comfortable in Indiana. That's right. Giving them 50000 bucks. Of course, oh, but wait. While he's out there saying, oh, this is terrible. Oh, we got to do all we can for the homos. Oh, I'm giving money away to my employees so they can move somewhere more comfy because Indiana is so horrible now. They're going to start hanging homos by trees in Indiana, you know. And, uh, oh, but wait, 
he acknowledged that Salesforce won't be able to completely pull out of Indiana, given the size of the company's operations there. In other words, well, I'm not moving because we make lots of money doing business in Indiana. <laughs> Hypocrite. And now Mike Pence, the weasel governor of Indiana, oh, yeah, he's going to uh, try to fix the law. This Salesforce CEO homo here, he's, he called the law brutal, unfair, and unjust. Huh. And he's working with state officials in hopes of changing this. You know what? If I was Indiana, I'd be glad to get rid of places like this. Now, let's see here. Big business has been at the forefront of the backlash against the Indiana law. You've got to wonder why. Why are all these CEOs, why are they all promoting homosexuality and sodomy? Hmm? You know what, folks? If you own stock in a company like that, sell it. Listen to this. Apple, Yelp, the NCAA, Eli Lilly, NASCAR, General Electric, Angie's, listen, PayPal are among the companies that have raised concerns. Well, there's the list. I would never buy an Apple product. It's not just because of this. I just don't like I have never liked Apple. None of their products. I don't like their idea of a closed architecture like they have that, oh, you want some new software. Well, you're going to have to get it from Apple. You're going to have to pay ten times more. Oh, no, you're no choice for you. We'll decide what's best for you. And Yelp? Yelp is just a, a bunch of whiners all the time on there. Yelp is a fraud, okay? Yelp is probably a government creation. Because what they do is they'll go on there, and if by some magic, if you are politically incorrect, you've got a politically incorrect business, all of a sudden everything on Yelp is bad, bad. You're bad. Everything about your business is bad. And the NCAA, screw them. They're one of the more corrupt things in the world. You know what? NCAA is nothing but professional professional sports, little farm league using tax money through public colleges to, to farm for their athletes so they can make millions of dollars. That's all they're doing, and they're doing it on your dime. They're doing it through your public school institutions. As a matter of fact, they have so taken over that nothing matters at the schools except the sports because that's what brings in the money. Look at Penn State. They had a pedophile football coach that they let go on and on and on for a decade. Why? Because that football program made lots of money for Penn State. Penn State, you know, Pennsylvania State, yes, publicly owned by the state of Pennsylvania or Commonwealth, if they like to be called that. Yeah. Why? Because Penn State football made lots of money for Penn State. That's why they let the pedophile keep, oh, 
and I don't mean just pedophile, I mean homosexual pedophile, okay? And that goes for Joe Tomato Paterno, too, because he knew all about it, and he let it go for a decade, because the homosexual pedophile was Joe's pal. And the governor of Pennsylvania threw a blind eye to it also. Why is this? Why are all these CEOs pushing the sodomite agenda? Let me help you. Because they are sodomites. I mean, the Apple guy who runs Apple is openly a sodomite. So you do realize if you buy any Apple products, you are supporting the sodomite agenda. I mean, openly. You know what? People say, hey, you know what? If you pay income tax, you're funding your own destruction. And, uh, yeah, that's true. I agree with that. However, buy an iPhone, and let's not forget the I stands for idiot. You're funding the homosexual agenda. That's right. In other words, You're funding your own destruction. And you know the sad thing is, with income taxes, you know, they've got the big hammer over your head and they've scared you and they're, you know, and they have destroyed, you know, many people. No doubt about it. They are, you know, I mean, you're scared of them and you have good reason to be scared of them. But Apple? No. You're supporting them voluntarily anyway we'll take a break we'll be back in a bit that's great it starts with an earthquake birds and snakes and airplanes and they pursue not a plane I have a hurricane listen to yourself turn work to the dumb knees dummy to your own knees beat it up and not speak front no strings doesn't matter put the clatter with Thank you. 
Since the beginning of the United States, kings have sought it, nations have fought for it. It has been traded, borrowed, purchased, and stolen. There is a reason for it. To secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, invest with the security of gold and silver. Call Discount Gold and Silver Trading at 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Listen to Financial Survival with your host, Melody Cedarstrom, on American Voice Radio Network and Shortwave Radio. Visit DiscountGoldAndSilverTrading.net or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. For the very best in gold and silver trading, call toll-free 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Call now. Studies have shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. internet access for their people during civil strife. The FCC sees in-use commercial shortwave frequencies right after the September 11th attacks. 
No one communication system can be dependent on to be there when you need information. You need choices. You need a KU-man free-to-air satellite system from ABR. The ABR system includes a receiver, an LNB, and a 75-centimeter dish. All you need to get on your own is the coaxial cable. The system is delivered to your door for $149.99. That's right, delivered for $149.99. That's the shipping and the system, $149.99. Call 541-225-4659. That's 541-225-4659. Or visit AmericanVoiceRadio.com and click the satellite system.
All right, we're back. This is the Frank Report. I'm your host, Francis Steffen. You're listening right here on American Voice Radio Network. It is still the 2nd of April, 2015. It's Thursday evening. It's about 8.45 and a half out here on the Pacific Time Coast. If that's all true where you're at, we are live, which means you can participate in the show. Call 855-566-3738, 855-566-3738. That'll get you on the air. That's toll-free, by the way. And you can also participate by going to theamericanvoice.com or americanvoiceradio.com. And go to the chat room. You can ask questions. You can make comments. You can just chat with the other folks in there. But you can't play Stump the Room because it's over with and the room has defeated both of the songs tonight. R.E.M., It's the End of the World as We Know It, and Taxman by Stevie Ray Vaughan. So the room got both of them. And a nice way for the room to end the week with a victory. And, oh, yes, I... I said earlier today that I would announce it that uh, I'm going to take uh, I'm taking off tomorrow. I'm not going to do the uh, afternoon show because nobody else is. So if nobody else is, then uh, I don't have a need to do a show just uh, for me to do a show. Everybody else is taking off because it's Good Friday. I didn't you know, is that a holiday anymore or what? Come on. But hey, you know. I guess a holiday's a holiday. Chance to have a day off is a chance to have a day off, I suppose. So, you know, I'm going to, uh, I'm taking off too because there's no reason for me not to. So, that's that. Now, let's get back to some stuff. Where I left off was the homos. Now, in the in the room here, I realized that people didn't know. I, I mean, I should realize people didn't know because I didn't know until two days ago. I'd never heard the term tomato to describe. What it describes is it describes a homo that is pretending to be straight. It's a German term, okay? And uh, the reason why they use the word tomato to describe homos that pretend to be straight is the fact that most people out there, if you ask them, they will tell you, yeah, you know, tomato's a vegetable. But tomato is not a vegetable. Tomato is a fruit. It's just everybody thinks it's a vegetable, but it's not. A fruit. Get the, uh, I think that's very clever myself. Uh, that's what these people are, folks. Okay? These these CEOs and all these celebrities and all these people that you think are just regular, straight, normal people that are out there descending to the death, telling people that the law, allowing people to have their religious rights at the same level as a homo's rights is brutal and unfair. See, these are nothing but They're nothing but closet homos, okay? Because what is – are we supposed to think why? Because you're just such a sweetie pie that cares about everybody. Really? Then why don't you care about religious freedom? And where are – you know, where are the churches? Where's Joel Osteen? 
Where's the rest of them? You know where the rest of them are? You know where they'll come down? They'll come down on the side of sodomy. That's right. The American 501c3 churches will come down on the side of sodomy and say, well, God loves everybody. Well, God doesn't love sodomites. God destroys sodomites. Do you know why? Because they're unnatural. They are they are of Satan. If it's not natural, then what is it? Unnatural. It's it, it's a pathetic. It, it, it's pathetic, folks. It is absolutely pathetic. Now, here's something else I think is pathetic. You might disagree. A newly revised tattoo policy will remove the limit of number and size of soldiers' tattoos coming very soon. Oh, yay. Now we can have soldiers covered in tattoos. Isn't that wonderful? Gee, they can be like all the other gang members around the world. Yeah, they're still not going to be able to have tattoos on their necks. And here's the other thing, folks. They're going to ban tattoos that are extremist, racist, or sexist. I wonder who's going to decide that. You know, what is extremist? What exactly is racist? Now, let's see. If a black guy has a tattoo of, say, oh, I don't know, Malcolm X, and a white guy has, say, oh, I don't know, a tattoo of, say, Hitler, which one do you think is going to be considered racist? Yeah, you get the picture, huh? So the army is saying, well, you know, they're they're lightening up on this because uh, they've got input from soldiers. No. No, they haven't. Do you know what they've gotten? They've gotten the fact that they want to allow all these MS-13 gang members from Central and South America because you know why? It's the homeland after all, folks. So they got to let the homeland people into the homeland army, don't they? Of course they do. But you see, MS-13 gang members are all covered in tattoos. So, well... They don't qualify. So now, oh, good, we can let all the MS-13 gang members into the Army. Won't that be good? What could go wrong with that idea, huh? So there you have it. And, you know, society is changing its view of tattoos. I wonder why that is. Why is that? Why is society changing its views of tattoos? And how long is that going to last? I'll tell you how long it's going to last. It's going to last until all these cutie pie 20-year-olds with all the tattoos turn 60 and wrinkle up and look like a disgusting, gruesome mess. And all the kids see it and say, holy schmear, I don't want to look like that. And stop getting tattoos. That's how long it's going to last. 
the Army's got no place encouraging or allowing this sort of behavior because, you know what, it's a big mistake. People can say, well, you know, piercings are bad and this is bad too, but you know what, piercings, unless, unless you get piercings like I see some of these people get in their ears, oh, yeah, that you could put a, you know, you, you could put basically a three-quarter pipe through it because they make the hole really, really big, so their ears are really, really big. I don't think, wow, is that ever stylish or what not? But if you just get a piercing, a normal piercing, and then later on in your life you decide, eh, that was a mistake. I, I don't think I'm going to. I'm not wearing these things anymore. You know, those holes will fill in eventually. But tattoos, uh, not so much. You're stuck with those for life. That's right. Unless you want to go get some scar tissue and go through the tattoo removal process. I hear it's really painful. But anyway, you could do that. But other than that, you are stuck with it for life. So when you're a shriveled up 65-year-old, you're going to look like a real mess. You're going to be absolutely gruesome. You're not going to be the cutie pie, oh, little look at me, I'm a prostitute, tattooed thing. Yeah, no, you're going to be this old, wrinkled, mess, gruesome creature that nobody wants anything to do with. So, you know, hey. Hey, how about this? You think the Japanese got it going on? You think they got it all figured out? You think they're the kind of people, oh, yeah, here's the working people. This is the model. Hard-working, corporate structure. Yeah, this is, they take care of their own. Really? Do they? That's, the, that, that's what we've been told. Oh, not quite. An increasing number of low-income Japanese men and women are permanently living in tiny, dark cubicles at Internet cafes where they play video games in their spare time while saving on rent. Known as Internet Cafe Refugees, they spend every night washing, sleeping, and eating at the gaming centers in between what is usually low-paid and menial employment. The worrying trend has been featured in short documentary by Japanese photojournalist uh, Shiloh Fudaka, called Net Cafe Refugees. It reveals the lifestyle of people who move from spending most of their time to all of their time inside Internet cafes. They've got some pictures here that is, uh, you know, it's it's disturbing. What it reminds me of is a junkie living in a cheap flea bag motel, you know, a, a one-room bathroom-down-the-hall hotel because, you know, they're junkies and they really, can't, they really can't manage to have anything but a crappy job and they spend all their money on snack so they can't afford anything but a flea bag motel. That's what this reminds me of, except these people are addicted to the Internet. Uh, and they're not all old. They're not all young either. 
cubicles are extremely small, but have become popular homes for men who would spend most of their spare time in cafes anyway. This guy's got to be, I don't know, 60 years old. Yeah, this is good, huh? This is signs of a healthy economy, huh? A healthy economy and a rich culture. Yes, that's what this is signs of, not... Here's something Iran accuses U.S. of lying about nuke agreement. I don't, I, I don't, you know what? Here's something. If you folks out there weren't insulted when I told you that I, I basically trust China more than the federal government in Washington, D.C., well, I trust Iran more than the federal government in D.C. also. Because you know what? Iran, I don't care. Okay, they want nukes. They want this. They want that. They want what they want for their country's own benefit, for their own self-interest. Okay, I understand that. I may disagree with it, but I understand that. What I don't understand is betraying your own country, your own people, like they are doing in Washington, D.C., because, you see, they don't have any country. They don't have any people. They're all globalists in Washington, D.C. They have been taken over by globalists. And do you know what globalists are? That is the communist worldwide revolution. You might not believe it, and it's difficult because we don't know what to call it. Because they're not the same communists that they were 40 years ago. These have evolved into like this communist hybrid thing. But anyway, so... Iran says, well, wait a minute, the United States is out there saying that we're going to gradually do this and gradually do that, but that's not what they told us. They said that the EU will terminate the implementation of all nuclear-related economic and financial sanctions. Says, does this sound gradual to you? No, it isn't. And John Kerry... Gee, who do I believe, the guy from Iran or John Kerry? John Kerry's a known liar. He lied about Vietnam. He lied about his medals. He's lied ever since he started talking. And he's still lying. And now there's something else that will affect your life, folks. Now Republicans are backing Loretta Lynch. Isn't that great? Oh, yeah, the newest one is an Illinois Republican. Folks, You know what, if you're in a state, you better find out if your senator is backing Loretta Lynch. And if he is or she is, you better have a talking to with them. Because I'm telling you, and I'm not the only one who said it, uh, Ted Cruz has said it, Rand Paul has said it. Of course, I said it before they did. He's going to be worse than Eric Holder. Bet on it. And we've got Republicans going to side with this. Just on the whole thing of, look, Obama wants it, say no. You've got the majority. You do not have to allow this. Don't allow it. It's, it's just it's unbelievable, folks. The treason, the betrayal that's going on out of Washington, D.C. is truly, truly criminal. Anyway, got to go. I'll see you Monday. Thanks for listening.
American Voice Radio Network is heard on Galaxy 19, 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices. warships, 
and a satellite spy station. From here, the United States has attacked Afghanistan and Iraq. The Pentagon calls it an indispensable platform for policing the world. Diego Garcia is a British colony. It lies midway between Africa and Asia, one of a group of unique coral islands. This is rare film taken by missionaries before the Americans came in the 1960s. 2,000 people lived in the Chagos Islands, a gentle Creole population originally from Africa and India, whose communities dated back to the late 18th century. They were thriving villages, a school, a hospital, a jail, a church, a railway, and above all, a benign, undisturbed way of life. Unknown to the islanders, all this was about to end. A conspiracy was underway between the governments of Britain and the United States. The year is 1961. In this film, never seen before, the man on the right is Rear Admiral Grantham of the U.S. Navy. His visit to Diego Garcia marked the beginning of a top-secret Anglo-American survey of the islands for a military base so vast that it would cost over a billion dollars. The Chagos Islands were then governed from Mauritius, a thousand miles away. When Mauritius got its independence from Britain in 1968, it was on condition that it would lay no claim to the Chagos Islands. Hidden from Parliament and the U.S. Congress, the deal was this. The Americans wanted the islands, in their words, swept and sanitized. An entire population was declared expendable. All of them were to be deported. British and American authorities implemented a policy decision that was aimed at depriving that community in the shadows from basic supplies. No milk, 
The effect of the policy was to terrify many of them into leaving. They were also told their islands might be bombed. In the spring of 1971, Sir Bruce Greatbatch, KCBO, CMG, MBE, governor of the Seychelles, gave the order that all the dogs on Diego Garcia were to be killed. These were much-loved pets, and the horror of their killing was taken as a warning by the islanders. Almost a thousand pets were rounded up and gassed using the exhaust fumes from American military vehicles. The relationship with our pets would be the same whether you are Shagoskin or whether you are British. And, uh, uh, and uh, they, they were absolutely destroyed by the fate reserved to their dogs. And, and many of them told me, no uncertain words, they were told that any objection to the depopulation, they would suffer the same fate. Perhaps the lowest trick was that those islanders needing to go to Mauritius were prevented from returning home. The remaining population was summoned to the administrator's office and told that their homeland had been sold and that those who remained will be loaded onto ships and expelled. In this photograph, people are standing in silence.
From here, they were marched up the hill to a prison that has since been demolished. They were kept in cells until they were transported to Mauritius. This is Port Louis, the capital of Mauritius. Here they were dumped on the docks, bewildered and terrified. Some of them stayed on the, on the docks, waiting for the next ship to take them back home. This is, uh, there was never to be a, a ship to take them back home. They were taken to this housing estate, which was then derelict and had been taken over by animals. Was it hell? I went to see them. What way was it hell, do you think? Children. They had no clothes. The children were absolutely useless. They had been rolled over in ash and earth and bathing for a seal. The islanders began to die, not only from poverty, but from what they call sadness. Lizette, now in her 60s, Lost two children. <laughs> They would sing their way through life here, I mean, they, they wept their way through life, but here you can. And there were, as you mentioned, so many cases of suicide. There were so many cases of children, you know, not receiving proper care and dying in hospital. I know the case of one lady who lost two children within two or three months, and she wasn't able even to uh, perform the funeral because she didn't have the money necessary for that. And it was the state who took care of it. The hospital, from the hospital, the child was taken to the cemetery. This is sort of a trauma, that sort of, of experience this is for, for an old, old lady. And this old lady is still weeping. She's able to go back home. By the end of 1975, the secret expulsion of the people of the Chagos Islands was complete. A survey of their conditions in exile told of 26 families that had died together in poverty, of nine suicides, of young girls forced into prostitution in order to survive. The report gave these examples. Elaine and Michelle Musa, mother and child, committed suicide. Leonie Rangasamy, prevented from going back, drowned herself.
Perrine Chateau, no job, no roof, committed suicide. This was a glimpse of the suffering inflicted by the British government. And yet, in a letter dated 16th of August 1976, a Foreign Office official wrote, and I quote, Though we have no information about deaths, some deaths are bound to have occurred in the normal course of events. This is how most British people know Mauritius, as an exotic holiday destination, especially for honeymooners. They almost never see the slums of the exiled people of the Chagos, who are also British citizens. This is film taken in 1982 of a family of Chagos Islanders in exile in Mauritius. Here all 25 of them sleep in shifts in one squalid room with the baby in a cardboard box. We found the same family living in the same shack in the same terrible conditions. They still sleep on the floor. The rain still pours in. The toilet is still a hole in the ground. They are still so poor, but they often go hungry. What was done to these people is today defined in international law as a crime against humanity. What has changed since they were last filmed 22 years ago? Your wife, she, she died, is that right? Yeah. What nostalgia is more than that, it's like uh, missing even the air that you breathe, missing the environment that you're used to, missing your home, missing your cats and your dogs, yeah, your pets, which were always destroyed. This is Olivia Bancor, leader of the Chagos Islanders in exile. When he was a boy, he promised his mother Rita that he would lead the fight for justice for his people. Olivia knows all too well their suffering. So you've lost a sister and three, four brothers? Four brothers, yes. Tell me what happened to them. I have a, I, one brother who had, uh, who had been died with a uh, uh, hard drug. I have two bro other brothers who died with uh, alcohol. 
my, my sister just put a fire on, on her hand and be very discouraged with the light. She committed suicide. In 1982, the Chagos Islanders, now desperate, demonstrated in the streets of Mauritius. This embarrassed the British government into giving them a derisory compensation, which came to less than £3,000 per person. This didn't even pay their debts, and to get this money, many believe they were tricked into signing away their right to return home. Was entirely improper, unethical, dictatorial to have the Shagasim put the thumbprint on an English legal drafted document where the Shagasim, who doesn't read nor speak any English, let alone legal English, is made to renounce basically all his rights as a human being. Renouncing their rights was precisely what the British government wanted them to do. They could then be forgotten. That same year, the government spent two billion pounds defending the rights of the Falkland Islanders who were white. My people, the previous thing, the Christmas So you send them 2,000 um, 2000 inhabitants of the Falklands, but 2,000 people in Chagos. One out, the other one, we come to your rescue. Come on. Come on. You are, you are all English. You are all British. <laughs> come on. Where is your sense of fair play, my fellow? <laughs> Where is your sense of fair play? From a tiny lock-up in the poorest section of Port Louis, Mauritius, Olivia Bancor, an electrician, has taken the struggle across the world. With Nelson Mandela. Yeah, I, I am with Nelson Mandela, an example of, of, of human rights fighters, you see. Uh, we compare our struggle in the 1990s, the island of struggle took a dramatic turn with the discovery of these documents in the public record office in London. Here was the evidence that they and their supporters were looking for. These long-forgotten secret official files revealed the full scale of the conspiracy and the cynicism that drove it. The conspiracy got underway with the creation of a fake colony called the British Indian Ocean Territory, or BIOT. The sole purpose of creating this colony 
was to kick the people out. And to do it, the Foreign Office invented a fiction. They said the islanders didn't really belong to the Chagos, but were merely temporary contract workers. Foreign Office Memorandum, July 1965. Born there, and in some cases their parents were born there too. The intention is, however, that none of them should be regarded as being permanent inhabitants of the islands. So how would they be regarded? A new position of the inhabitants would be greatly simplified from our point of view, though not necessarily from theirs, if we decided to treat them as a floating population. This long-forgotten British government film shot in 1957 reveals the duplicity. Clearly, the Foreign Office knew the people of the Chagos were anything but temporary workers. Out of a total of 100 or more little islands, only some half a dozen are permanently inhabited, partly by people from Mauritius and the Seychelles, but mostly by men and women who have been born and brought up on these fragments of land. It is the story of their lives which this film tells. The British tried to claim, and I, I just quote one of their documents, that the Chagos had no indigenous or settled population. Back in London, some officials began to worry about being caught up. Foreign Office Memo, November 1965. There is a civilian population. In practice, however, I would advise a policy of quiet disregard. In other words, let's forget about this one until the United Nations challenges on it. One can only say that they were looking at another prize, and this was considered a, a, a price was worth paying because in reality there would be no objections. Get away with it. All they were concerned about, the documents show this quite clearly, all they were concerned about was whether they'd be found out. In that same month, the British representative at the United Nations, F.W.D. Brown, was instructed to lie to the General Assembly that the Chagos Islands were uninhabited when the United Kingdom first acquired them. But this has been done violation of the United Nations. Why it is done so uh, in absolute discretion and you lie, you know, well, lie, damn lie. What the official documents show is not just a trail of lies, but an imperious attitude of brutality and contempt. In August of 1966, Sir Paul Gore Booth wrote, We must surely be very tough about this. The object of the exercise was to get some rocks which will remain ours. There will be no indigenous population except seagulls. 
At the end of this is a note handwritten by Dennis Greenhill, later Baron Greenhill of Harrow. Unfortunately, along with the birds go some few tarzans or men. Its origins are obscure, and who are being hopefully wished on to Mauritius. When you look at the documents, here you've got some of your former colleagues talking about, well, we just need some rocks, because in all the sonnets are a bunch of Tarzans and a few Janes and all that. Well, yes, I mean, I, I know the person that you're referring to in the... Uh, yes, uh, and I have the greatest respect for him. He's, he's dead now. Uh, and I'm sure that if he had any clue that, that the throwaway remarks would have become public, he would never have written that. Uh, because I don't believe he's that sort of person, frankly. Uh, people, people put things in minutes on... The conspirators now began to get the wind up. A senior official wrote, This is really all fairly unsatisfactory. We propose to certify up to 240 islanders, more or less fraudulently, as belonging somewhere else. This all seems difficult to reconcile with the secret trust of the United Nations Charter. The sacred trust he refers to obliges Britain to safeguard the human rights of its citizens in a dependent territory. His warning counted for little. One official offered a way around the problem. He wrote, We do not regard the United Kingdom as bound by such a rule. In this respect, we are able to make up the rules as we go along and treat the inhabitants of BIOT as not belonging to it in any sense. This same official summed up the whole charade in the subtitle of one of his reports, Maintaining the Fiction. I think they were aware of what they were doing to the people, that the trauma that was about to descend on the boys in colonial offices, they really care very much about <laughs> Come on. <laughs> cover-up went right to the top of government. It was drawn up by the Foreign Secretary, Michael Stewart, in the form of a secret minute sent to the Prime Minister on July the 25th, 1968. In this document, Stewart reveals that he is fully aware that Diego Garcia has a population going back at least two generations. He proposes that the government lie to the world but there is no indigenous population. On April the 26th, 1969, Wilson's private secretary wrote to Stewart saying that the Prime Minister approved the plan. The documents show that it was decided at the highest level by the Prime Minister, particularly Harold Wilson. 
very well that there was a population and they were going to be removed. The problem is that this is policy made almost on the back of an envelope. There's no democratic input. Uh, nobody was asking questions. Nobody was knocking on the door. Nobody was there to represent the interests of the islanders. They just didn't exist as a political factor to take into account. Dennis Healy was Defence Secretary in the same government. When we asked Mr Healy for an interview, he replied, I fear I have no memories of the Chagos Archipelago. Sorry. Lord Healy's uh, letter about not remembering the Chagos Archipelago bollocks. Absolutely. He's an acute and intelligent man. On May the 6th, 1969, Healy's private secretary wrote this letter to 10 Downing Street. It confirmed that the defense secretary had read Stuart's plan and agreed with its recommendations. In Washington, a parallel conspiracy was taking place, also in high secrecy. The object was to keep the expulsion of the islanders from Congress. So payment for the lease of the islands was disguised as a $14 million discount on a Polaris nuclear missile about to be supplied to the Royal Navy. Is there ever a time when people in power consider the consequences of the imposition of that power? Because the consequences for the population of Diego Garcia were disastrous. The circumstances involve how many? Uh, 2,000 people. 2,000 people. have been living there since the end of the 18th century. Well, a fair number of them, if I remember, were, were uh, external laborers. Well, been that, that's been shown to be untrue. The British government tried to represent them as that. They were an indigenous six, uh, three, four generations. As I said, I went through this record some years ago, and at that time, said that these were imported laborers from the grid. We found in the National Archives in Washington this letter from the American ambassador in Mauritius. February the 1st, 1972, Ambassador Brewer to Washington. It is, of course, absurd to imply that Diego Garcia had no fixed population. There is no question that the island has been inhabited since the 18th century. I don't think there's any doubt at all that the Americans who visited the island to reconnoitre as to whether this was a base area, they saw that there was a functioning civilization on the island. They could not have been unaware of the settled human communities that they found. So when Schlesinger said they didn't know, they looked into it. Amnesia, at best. That's all you can say to that. It was not true. They knew. There's another, and they collaborated together on how do we get rid of these people? How do we lie uh, that they're simply contract laborers? When many of them, their fathers, their grandfathers, their children further back, were in the cemetery. Take a decision in Washington and London, and it devastates the lives 
several thousand people on the other side of the world. Isn't that something that should be called to account, no matter how long? Amongst the various activities of the British and the American government in the 20th century, not to mention the 19th century, this was a relatively small matter. One goes back to British behavior, for example, in World War II, back on Dresden, back on the French fleet, all under Winston Churchill, whom we so much admire, and rightly so. This is a very small matter. It is being pinpointed now for reasons uh, that I cannot ascribe to anything other than request for a certain publicity. Well, I think it's a, from their point of view, the one thing that Jagossian Islanders are not the, the Nazis, and from their point of view, it's a quest for justice. And what is your motivation, if I may inquire? Purely a quest for justice, I'm sure. Yes. Yes, yes it is. Yes. Do you not think these, these questions are, are valid? asking you about consequences of the imposition of great power on people? I think that the questions are refused, are based upon a refusal to acknowledge the context of the times and the attitudes of the times, and that is based upon uh, a willingness 35 or 40 years after a set of events to go back and critique them when they had become, what shall I say, far less relevant. Far less relevant? The High Court in London found it extremely relevant. November 2000, it agreed with the people of the Chagos and handed down a shaming rebuke to the British government. The court ruled that the expulsion of the islanders was illegal. After more than 30 years, they had won and were finally going home, so they believed. Victory in the High Court gave Olivia Bancor and his people the right to start their lives again. Something which I will never forget when just coming out of the court with this to ask that it is a victory for, for the Sagosian people, the small people upon which it's power. When he has his mother, me too, challenge him now. You are not with him, me too, content. Media, anglais, you know, me, me, sentiment, you know. Voilà, un sentiment, allez. However, the Foreign Office had other ideas. Within hours of the High Court judgment, it announced that the government would not allow the islanders back to Diego Garcia, the main island where most of them came from. 
Robin Cook told me that he said it would have been politically impossible to allow the Chagossians to go back to Diego Garcia because they had a treaty with the United States. Well, the first thing to point out there is that this is British sovereign territory. The British have a duty to their own citizens. They have the legal power to tell the Americans what policy and what immigration law they're putting in place on the but in the meantime, we've signed a couple of pieces of paper with the Americans, but we now regard our obligations to them as paramount. Just don't see the logic of that. And to keep the people from the rest of the Chagos Islands, the Foreign Office invoked something called a feasibility study, which would question if people could survive in this idyllic place where they had lived for six generations. This study consulted not a single inhabitant of the Chagos Islands. After the High Court victory, the government promised the islanders that at least they could visit the graves of their families. Boats were chartered here in Port Louis, Mauritius, but they never set sail. Baroness Amos, Tony Blair's leader of the House of Lords, explains why they never went back. Charters for vessels. Unfortunately, uh, the vessel was not made available. Uh, we are happy to reinstate any such visit, but it would not include Diego Garcia uh, because of the reluctance of the U.S. government. The president of Mauritius, Kasamu team, took her up on this. I said to the Baron, that Britain has no objection. He said, no, Britain has no objection. Said, do you allow me to take the matter up with President Bush? She said, by all means. This is what I did. I wrote to President Bush. But it's like this. We don't deal with the Persian government. We deal only with the British government. And the British are not agreeable. It's black and white. The British are not agreeable to this visit. And we are great with the British. We've been playing table tennis, ping pong with when we go to London, we are told it's an American problem. When we go to Washington, we are told it's a London problem. It is an arrangement between them to, to you know, treat this problem as a ping-pong ball. And, and, and it's, it's terrible because by the time the ping-pong game is over, well, there will be no shackles in flat. By June this year, the Blair government had run out of excuses but there was still one more trick to play. Have you ever heard of something called an order in council? It's a royal decree using archaic powers, which unknown to most of us are still invested in the Queen. It's a cosy arrangement. The Queen rubber stamps what in many cases, politicians know they can't get away with democratically. On November the 5th, 1965, an order in council was issued by the government of Harold Wilson. The aim was to secretly expel the population of the Chagos Islands, all of them loyal subjects of the Queen. In June this year, the Blair government used the same powers to bypass Parliament and the High Court in order to ban the Chagos Islanders from ever returning home. Dictators do this, but without the quaint ritual. The quaint ritual takes place here at Buckingham Palace. 
The public never sees it. Parliament is merely told about it. Boards and councils, uh, they go through without discussion. They read in title only, no reasons given for them, no contents are spoken. The Privy Council never even sits down. Two are standing around, the clerk of the council reads through the title, uh, there were two authors, the Queen says, agreed. A decree. It's a decree. And with that royal decree, the people were banned forever from going home. It was June the 10th, 2004, election day in Britain, when they thought no one would notice. The High Court has ruled that the expulsion of the Chagossians was illegal. The Commission on Human Rights of the United Nations has called on your government to uh, return them. Why has this government denied this basic human right of return? Firstly, the feasibility study, which was drawn up by independent experts, which told us that the only population of the islands that would be possible is short-term on a subsistence basis. Longer-term would be precarious, given the climatic conditions, given that in some cases uh, some of the islands are barely two foot above sea level, and would be very costly. It is true that the Foreign Office has conducted, I think now, three um, feasibility studies, as they call them, that resettlement. Their contents have nothing whatever to do with the resettlement of the islanders. Who would visit every 200 years? Page after page after page is devoted to establishing that the beaches are made of sand. Please and folks often walk across them. You know what sand is, I know what sand is. They then go on to say human interaction on global warming will make areas for a resettled population. A resettled population is hundreds of military and thousands of civilian workers. They're all on Diego Garcia. They're not going to sink under the waves. Far from sinking, they're sailing on it, playing in it, and having a barbie next to it. What do they call this unlivable place? Fantasy Island. Nobody takes those conclusions seriously, and, and insofar as government is At the moment, on Diego Garcia, there are 4,000 U.S. servicemen and contractors. There are two bomber runways, each two and a half miles long. There are anchor anchorages for 30 ships and two nuclear-cleared berths. There are space tracking domes and weapon ranges. It's the biggest American base outside the United States, which the U.S. Navy describes as indispensable. The living conditions as outstanding. The recreational facilities as unbelievable and the U.S. wants to extend the lease past 2016. And, and you're asking us to believe these islands are uninhabited or they're sinking. No, no, no. Of course they're inhabitable, but at a cost. The United States does have concerns about the climactic conditions longer term in respect of Diego oh, Garcia. Right. And has, uh, exactly the same concerns that were 
formulated in our uh, independent study. But what the independent study told me, that there was no fresh drinking water, real concerns in the outer islands about the sea levels and the danger of flooding, and there would be a need for substantial expenditure on actually building a livable uh, infrastructure. One of the chief things, well, what is the water supply? We can't guarantee it. These islands, and I published this in 1971, are respectively uh, the third, Peros Danos, and the fifth, Salomon, wettest islands in the world. Peros with four meters of rain a year, a year and the other with 3.5. When it rains, the water table is so high, um, the rain remains on the surface for days. So what, what does that make these feasibility studies? Worth it. Waste of time. Waste of time. I ask you, does this government, do politicians in this government, because this story has shocked most people, do you not feel any shame for these actions? I said to you at the beginning, I am not seeking to justify the decision. No, no, now. I mean shame now. Because no, 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 no. The same, no, the same powers to ban them. No, I don't feel ashamed because I took what I believe, and the government took, a responsible decision in the circumstances almost 40 years after the last Tchaikovskian lived within these islands, and I was being asked, and the government and the British taxpayer was being asked, to pick up the financial tab to allow, uh, almost on an exploratory basis, for people to go back to the islands. You can't manufacture money. You actually have to make choices about how you spend your money. Only the other day, the minister was asked, uh, what is the anticipated cost? And uh, the answer was five million pounds to set up and five million pounds a year to run. Well, that's peanuts. Five million pounds is the cost of a, uh, an embassy building in London. This is an embassy building in Mauritius, home to Mr. David Snoxall, the British High Commissioner. It has tennis courts, lavish gardens, security fences, a swimming pool, and a gym.
home. Their home is less than half a block away, and I'm sure even within those four walls, still hear the wail of the auctioneer. Paul's wife Jackie came to the auction. She couldn't stand just sitting at home. Much of their equipment went for only pennies of what it originally cost them. With each wave of the auctioneer's cane, you hope that maybe you can. One of the saddest parts of this auction is that the brewers don't even know if the They may still owe, even after all this. Ironically, Tal was one of the largest vegetable farmers in the state. But with the current farm philosophy, even he couldn't make So as the auctioneer continues with his pleas and helps, full of one more family. take away every cotton picking thing that we have and that we own. But there's one thing we're not going to take away, and that is the truth, the honesty, the integrity, our uh, love for our country, our love for our God, and our self-worth and our self-concept. They are not going to... became a counselor for the Farm Aid Up 
farmers look at me and tell me, they, they will say, Mona Lee, I'm going to tell you something. And you won't believe it. Because I have lived through this, and these stories that these farmers tell that are so horrifying and so hard and so unbelievable is these because that farmer does not lie. In order to show what's happening to a farmer, let me use a $1 bill, silver dollar. On the top of the $1 bill, it says Federal Reserve Note. Federal? No. Secondly, is it reserved? No, there's no reserve on there any place. Is it really a note? Now, according to Webster's Dictionary, in order for something to be a legal note, it must have an amount on it somewhere to pay in something. Is there anywhere on that dollar bill that it says it'll pay in any amount of anything? No. Did there used to be a promise to pay on that dollar bill? Yes. What did it one time promise to pay in? Gold or silver? Does it promise to pay in anything today? No. Then is it a legal note? No. Is it money? What is it? If it's not money. It's a green stamp, as I like to call it. Now let's take this silver dollar. And you'll remember that there was a time when you get one of the silver dollars. Can you today? No. It'll take approximately... Just ten of these to get one of these. Then what came in purchasing power? The green stamp or the silver dollar? The silver dollar today will still purchase what it would purchase 20 years ago. What will this purchase today? Approximately 13 cents of what it would purchase 20 years ago. So what did they do to the American farmer? They loaned him money in this purchasing power. Now notice the word purchasing power. What has changed purchasing power, this or this? The silver dollar is still worth the same purchasing power today it was 20 years ago. What changed purchasing power? The farmer was loaned money at this purchasing power. Remember the price of his land? $3,000 an acre. Inflation was going wild, and the farmer was told to buy more. So they loaned him bank entry at this purchasing power. Then his land is now worth $700 an acre. What's the purchasing power now of that land? Here is its value. The farmer was at, borrowed money at this purchasing power, was requested to pay back at this purchasing power. Can he? Total impossibility. You can't do it. Let's take an illustration of 30 years ago. A person who had $30,000, they could have bought three, uh, uh, two-bedroom, one-bath houses, could they not? Today, that same individual has $30,000 in a local lending institution getting interest. The two-bedroom, one-bath houses, can they buy with that $30,000 today? Approximately one-half of one. Then what did the power brokers of money do? They changed the purchasing power of that person's money in the lending institution. What did they do? They robbed them of approximately two-thirds of its purchasing power. They've done the identical same thing to the farmer. Now, we say it's the farmer's fault that he's broke. Quite to the contrary. The farmer is not at fault for being broke at all. 
It's the fault of the people who stole the purchasing power of the money from the father, loaning at this rate, asking to pay back at this rate, knowing all the time that they would get the farm for the price of the combine in five years. All eighty and then they wrote me up saying we're having a baby without prior approval. Built in in December. Which uh, I don't know if I just send it to you to foreclose on me now because it won me in eighty, not create an additional medical.
a person who called in on a radio talk show where I was in Dallas, Texas, just a few weeks ago, and she announced that she was the wife of an agent of the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. And her husband had just called her on the phone a few hours earlier and said they were closing down a bank that was not broke. It was solvent and in good condition. But the FDIC had ordered it closed. And in the course of the conversation, she said that they had a schedule of bank closures from then all the way up till a few months later, and that they were closing banks that, as far as she could determine by looking at the books, were completely solvent. And not only that, but he said that she said that her husband had found out since he went to work for the FDIC a year ago that they are not a federal agency, that they are a privately owned corporation. And she said this over the air to approximately 3 million people. So the Bedford National Bank might not necessarily have been broke. In fact, some of the people in the town told me that they knew from reliable sources that the bank was quite solvent. But what did the FDIC do? They came in, announced that the bank was insolvent closed it, then demanded payments from 150 loans. This is May the 7th, 1986. What time of the year does a farmer normally sell his crops? September, October, November, December? Well, it would be like uh, interesting, wouldn't it, to demand payment on 150 farms in May when the farmer has no money? But you do know in the fine print that it states that if a bank closes, goes broke and closes, that the lending institution or the guaranteeing institution, the FDIC, has a right to demand payment on those notes within X number of days if they would. So they've demanded payment of 150 notes in that area, most of which were farmers, and they couldn't pay. How are they going to pay? So what happens to the farmer? He loses his farm. Why? Because he couldn't pay a lump sum. What happened to this area of Bedford, Iowa? It could be multiplied all over America and was multiplied in Denver, Colorado, not too long ago. And I dare to say that the majority of Americans don't know about this. I just happened to be in Denver at the time and picked this up off the newsstand, the Denver Post, and it says, U.S. stings 156 Colorado banks. Did you know that 156 Colorado banks closed down one Friday afternoon? Some were not scheduled to open up on Monday morning? No. The American public didn't know that. Why not? Because for the next two weeks after I was in Denver and picked this up off the newsstand, I was in three adjacent states to Colorado, and nobody knew anything about this. Why? There appeared to be a media blackout. Fifteen years from now, how will historians...
$1,000 a day to store this surplus. Will the history books be able to explain this irony? Who will survive to read these books? The children who traveled with their parents from Michigan. Before this program is over, this is here from America's arms that have belonged to these families for because the price for U.S. farm products you put a crop in the ground. current government policy is allowing it to happen. These farm subsidies that help large little to help the family truly suffering. Farmers who have never missed a payment or forced to either pay up for every five to six farms that go under a business within that community. Don't function. Is subsidizing foreign farmers. History has proven the importance of agriculture. It was the farm crisis of the late 20s that led the way into the Great Depression of the 30s. And many say the farm crisis of today is much worse than it was then. The family farm is dying a slow. They're allowing it to happen. I was born in America. Trying to stay in America. Pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States. What do we say? Do we say I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States and to the democracy for which it stands? Not on your life. We say and to the republic for which it stands. But people under a republic cannot be made slaves. People under a democracy can be, but because a democracy is run by a bureaucracy, the average politician of what America is, what do they say? A republic or a democracy? Invariably, they'll say a democracy. Why? Because that's what we've been changed to be in order that we can be controlled. But what were we and what were we given by the founding fathers? We were given a constitutional republic. The two are as far separated from each other as east is from west. People oftentimes ask me, don't you believe in obeying government? I said, I sure do. Which one? After all, we have two forms of government in America today. Not one. We have a constitutional republic given us by the founding fathers in which they gave us the great American dream. We have a democracy which has seduced our constitutional republic, which is run by a bureaucracy, is soon to turn into a mobocracy, and has made us lose the sheeple instead of we the people. But I think it's time to get back to a constitutional republic and say, I will not be a slave.
traveling like this, I was able to learn additional things and publish my second book, Truth Produce the Nation, which deals with the Constitution and how we are losing our Constitution. Then, it was time to tell, as Paul Harvey says, the rest of the story. After all, there's more to it than that. So the third book that just came out recently, entitled Syndrome of Control, there was something I learned on the Sanjala. Because of my position as chaplain, I was expected to host or help to host dignitaries that came to the pipeline. It wasn't unusual for me to have breakfast with the secretary treasurer of Exxon to be with some congressman who was looking around the that afternoon to be with some New York rancher who was looking over the profits he might make from the pipeline. Now I learned something from talking to these people. They don't think like we think. Their mindset, or as I sometimes call it, their mental plot, is different than what the average American thinks. They think in global terms. They think in power. They think in control. Uh, it really matters not to them for the dollar as much as it does the control factor. is that they are being intentional. Initiated many, many years ago. America has been intentional. They've moved our industry offshore. Then they're breaking the banking industry of America or the banking institutions of America. Because whoever controls the food can ultimately control the people. Therefore, the farms of America must be confiscated. They must become corporate farms. They care not about the local farmer. After all, he cares about people from the top level. That's the direction that these people think in. They don't think in the same terms you and I think in. So in my book, Syndrome of Control, I describe these people as the internationalists. But they are a group of people who hold the purse strings of the world. Now, they gain by every conflict that takes place in the world. For instance, number one Red Square downtown Moscow is not there for the purpose of helping the Russian people. <laughs> What's it there for? For the purpose of financing Russia's war machine. They finance Russia's war machine. They finance America's private enterprise. It builds America's war machine. Every time our president goes to a summit conference and comes back and says, negotiations broke down, they love it. Russia borrows more money from them, America borrows more money from them. Finance both sides of every war. They have everything to gain by it. They have everything to gain by breaking the American farmer, by breaking America's airlines, by breaking the American privately owned banks. Let's take an illustration of this. If the local bank goes under, that bank is a privately owned institution. It is a stock holding company local private banks are, uh, whenever that bank goes under, remember that the FDIC or the FSLIC guarantee the money that's in those banks. Now, who is the FDIC and the FSLIC? Let's take those letters and examine them one by one. First of all, the letter F stands for federal. Well, are they really federal? Is federal express federal? B, deposit. Do they really have enough money on deposit for the money that's in that bank? Insurance. Is it really an insurance? F-D-I-C. C stands for corporation. Is a corporation a federal?
federal agency. The corporation has stockholders. It's chartered by either the federal or the state. Then who really owns the FDIC? Dig into the ownership of the FDIC, also the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve is owned by those who own the majority of the stock in the local Federal Reserve Regional Bank. Is the Federal Reserve an agency of the federal government? Well, what does the FDIC or the FSLIC have to gain by a local bank closing? Everything. After all, when a corporation or a company declares bankruptcy, the stockholders lose everything. The owners are changed. Who gets the bank free of charge, doesn't pay a penny for it, all of its assets, pays nothing for it, and who can call the loans within X number of days that are outstanding with that bank? And the farmers are required to pay. And if they can't pay, who confiscates the land? You see, it's to their advantage to break the banking industry. It's to their advantage to deindustrialize America. It was likewise to their advantage to break South Africa. Do you really think that race is the issue in South Africa? South Africa was the only completely self-supporting, self-sufficient, free enterprise Christian nation in Africa. Do you make any money off a nation like that? No, a nation like that doesn't have to. Well, what do you do? You have to break them so that you can put them under interest or usury. But what did they do? They broke the economy of South Africa. the hand of international bankers to say we need money. What are international bankers charging? Interest. Now they have them where they want them. They make money off of them. They do to the American farmer the identical same thing. As a farmer said to me the other day, this farm has been in our family for three generations. Farms profitably. We had no problem operating year by year. But then back in the 70s, all of a sudden something called inflation. And oh, by the way, who creates inflation? Who creates the, uh, the price of money, so to speak? Uh, who determines interest? Who determines the American dollar in relation to foreign currency? Isn't it all determined by the Federal Reserve? Who is the Federal Reserve? We just discussed it. So now let's go back to what they did to the farmer. In the 70s, interest rates started going up. Inflation went berserk. The farmer started paying more interest than what he could possibly make on the products on his farm. So the farmer became more heavier and heavier and heavier in debt. Then, as one farmer said, the price of corn three years ago was $3 a bushel. Here, it was uh, $2.75 a bushel. Now they said corn has gone down to only $1.75 a bushel. Next year, it's expected to be lower. Who determined the price of the product? Did the farmer? Then did he have anything to do with his going broke? Who determined the interest that had nothing to do with it. Interest went from 3 to 4 percent up to 12 and 15 percent in just a matter of a very few years. Did the farmer have anything to do with that? He blamed the farmer for what someone else did to him. Is the farmer broke because he determined in his mind he wanted to go broke or because he was a bad manager? After all, he doesn't determine the price of his corn or his wheat. That's determined by the people who broker it worldwide. Who determined the price of the interest? the Federal Reserve. To whose advantage is it to break the farmer? Now remember, whenever the farmer goes broke, his loans are turned back to the local bank. Then when the local bank goes broke, who gets all of the land? The FDIC or the FSLIC? Who are the owners? You see, we have to go a lot further back than just the local bank. 
Let's go to the Arabs, for instance. OPEC has nothing to do with the price of oil whatsoever. Remember that 35 to 40 years ago, the people who are today Arab sheep international bankers found oil on their property, decided that they would build their oil fields. But what do they charge whenever they build Arab oil fields? They charge interest, don't they? Well, they did, and made the Arabs. All of a sudden, oil prices go down to $10 a barrel, as low as $9 a barrel. Who did it? Does OPEC really control the price of oil? Quite to the contrary. We find out that Saudi Arabia just fired their oil minister. They said he can't maintain the price of oil anymore. Well, I guess he can't. He doesn't have enough control with where the purchase centers of the world are. Remember that the price of oil is controlled by the people who sit at the computers and purchase the tankers of oil every day. They take the price of that oil anywhere they want to. So they made the Arabs. Then they told the Arabs where they should invest. Where? In American treasury bills. Uh, gold and silver. Long-term security. Make them rich. They've invested all of this, but how much was gold back in the days when the Arabs were investing? Gold went to seven and eight hundred dollars an ounce, didn't it? Oil goes to nine dollars a barrel. Well, what do they do in order to maintain their economy? They have to cash in some securities, don't they? Can't cash in treasury bills. America doesn't have the money to pay them. Can't cash in long-term securities that are based on them. What do they cash in? But how much do they sell that gold back for? They bought it for $800 an ounce. What are they selling it back to the same people they bought it from? How much are they selling it for? $370, $400 an ounce. You see, they make them, then they break them. They make money on both sides. They made money when they made them. They made money when they break them. And who controls the price of their oil? Not OPEC, but the people who purchase that oil. Who are they? The internationalists, the international financiers. Now, they did the identical same thing to the American farmer. Remember there was a time when the farmer was making money. He was his own person. He could stand strong and proud and say, I'm glad to be a free enterprise farmer in America. The world, from the breadbasket of the world. Back in those days, the farmer didn't have to borrow much from the bank, if anything at all. Then what happened? Land prices started going up. They said, buy more land. Inflation went sky high. But who controls inflation? The identical same people that control the Federal Reserve and the American dollar. They took inflation to where they wanted it. The farmer was told to buy more, get deeper in. He did. After all, why shouldn't the banker advise him right? He'd always been his friend up until this point. Then the identical same people who caused that inflation brought about deflation and deindustrialization of America and taking the American dollar sky high on the world market in relation to other currencies. What did that do to the farmer? One farmer said to me the other day, my land values were up to $3,000 an acre back five years ago. Now they're down to $700 an acre. Who broke them? The same people that made them. Who took the price of land to $700 an acre? The same people who took it to $3,000 an acre. The manipulators worldwide of finance. Forces, the internationalists, if I may, as I described them in my book, Sin's Almost Control. So what happens to the farmer? All we have to do is bring about deflation. The farmer now is paying 12 to 15 percent interest and he can't pay off his loan. He doesn't have enough collateral. Whose fault was it that the farmer is losing the farm? Is it his fault? Quite to the contrary. It's the fault of the people who brought about the inflation. And then the deflation, 
of the people who intentionally, by design plan, are stealing the farms of America for the purpose of being able to control the food and the people and the farmers. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Melody Financial Survival. My Some other things for Thursday, April 2nd, 2015. Thank you once again for joining. Down the dollar seventy at twelve oh one. With a high of 12.09, silver was down 19. Back today, down 69. with oil that's uh
afternoon there was an announcement by Obama that there was a but they really don't have an agreement. But they now got extended time. Uh, they have until June 30th in order to get this completed. And, you know, it was funny. It was stated that Iran was two to three months away from the nuclear weapon. Sanctions lifted. Prior to the blood moons this weekend. Maybe, maybe not, but uh, we'll have to see how. percent drop the government had originally reported so we'll also have to see if Layoffs are temporary at the Mountain Iron Facility. It employs about 1,500 workers. Across the report that was...
bubbles, I believe, that have been created uh, for this country. You percent of total student loan balances. or have entered have this debt until it's paid. Very rarely will they eliminate that when you do go through a bankruptcy, but I mean, that's debt. Uh, Federal Reserve even claims that the student It's not a good sign for the future for these kids. I mean, where are the jobs? I mean, when you look at reports that say robots in, in, in lawyer and so forth um, arts degree that that you have on really does put a lot into go to our website have some fairly significant credentials. Sluggish, but it's improving. And how great it is that the unemployment is down to 5.5%. 5 .5 and 
about how the latest boom was built. College kids. Quite 10 years ago, but uh, yes, that's what it's. Mortgage loans increased one and a half percent. loans to individuals that have strong credit scores above 760. Again, you see a lot of uh, folks that so-called economy look to productivity that's increased less than one percent on average in the last three years. Wages, we all know that's basically flatlined or declined for decades. Very interesting. The boom being built, again, on this broad-based Average age of working plants and equipment in the U.S. is one of the oldest on record.
again, not signs that are good for a good, strong economic Talk about 
sure you get the uh, newsletter and this will
And we're on the American Voice Radio Network. Today's date is April 2nd, 2015. Time to get out of sin, the world, and look to the Holy City. Look to the one who suffered and died for you. Please make this choice tonight. If you get help after the program, call me. If you need help after the program, call me. I'll pray for you or with you. If you get the machine, please leave your name, your number, your prayer request, and or message. The phone number is 620-878-4682. 620-878-4682. In an emergency, my cell phone number is 316-619-4886. friendly and so if you go over there you scroll down on the right hand side then it says in time radio archives that's branch.podomatic.com at that place there are uh national satellite radio program so please pray about supporting airtime airtime is now due and so you folks out there say well i don't want to donate to the homeless and poor but pray about donation for airtime because it costs money to be on the air believe me and we don't sell anything as you know on the air and so please pray about supporting airtime and the mission church now a prayer will bring on tonight's guest Dear Heavenly Father, in Yeshua HaMashiach's name I pray, Father, I pray that radio goes tonight according to your will and not my will, because, Father, I don't know how to do radio. I don't know how to do... Please, help us tonight. Give everyone out there ears and wish to hear the truth. And so please, Father, bless this program tonight. Amen and amen. We're not guesting on with us many times. I keep bringing him back on, like I keep saying, because people like to hear him. He does really well in the archives, and so I know people are listening to him. Pastor Dan, how are you tonight? In brief, my previous webmaster from many years ago uh, got the domain for our website, you know, and happen and we need it in our control and for no reason we can't reach him so our 
main website, which is MessiahsBranch.org, folks. Don't freak out if you go over there because there's nothing there but a blank page. Brother, I, I just count it a joy to be on your program and a joy to have another day that I can praise the Almighty. You know, uh, for me, I think there's so many things coming together prophetically. It, it makes your head spin just trying to keep up with all of it, doesn't it, brother? It's just one thing after another. And you even uh, watched that about Iran today. that Iran just put out that I got off the drudge report a while ago, it looks like that we're handing, we're taking away all the sanctions and they're headed to make a bomb and so on and so forth. What do you think about that? Brother, <laughs> just today, and matter of fact, uh, just recent news, I turned on the uh, world news this evening, and, and I understand that the P5 world negotiators have finally come up with a framework to a very long tent uh, a series of meetings to try to keep Iran from getting the bomb, and now they have formulated a seven-point agreement, which will be finalized here in June. And what a joke this is, and I, I'm sure that when Congress gets a hold of it, they'll laugh uh, quite a bit at it. But uh, one, of the, one of the points that I pulled off of there is this one. Now, the third point is the breakout time. I think they're really proud of themselves that they've negotiated in a way now where the breakout time won't be as quick. It says the period of time that it would take for Iran to acquire the material it needs to make one nuclear weapon, currently assessed at two or three months, would now be extended to about one year under the New Deal. <laughs> a lot of negotiating. That's a lot of blood, sweat, and tears there, isn't it, brother? Can you see what's going on here? I know what's going on here. We just gave them... Uh in dire jeopardy, um, you know, this puts them on the pathway to build a bomb. And so, you know, whatever rhetoric Obama's trying to say, he's looking for a legacy thing or whatever, but Obama is paving the path to give him a bomb. But I, I don't think it's a legacy thing. I don't think that's why Obama's doing it. Why do you think Obama's doing it? It says, brother, that it's God that removes kings and sets them up. And he set up uh, Obama, apparently, and we have no other blame, but we say the voters did it, but I think God himself did it, because we're, we're getting ready to face some big trouble. And any time you ever have seen Paul, uh, a wicked leader, was put in place, and uh, again, I think I've said that before in your program, I, I hope that you don't misconstrue what I'm trying to say. I'm just saying I think that uh, there's, a, there's a bad agenda underneath the surface here, and I don't think uh, many people are they're led like sheep to slaughter. They, they just follow a, any shepherd, and, and uh, you know, he talks well, and he seems to have his, uh, his uh, act together, but I think that uh, evidence uh, proves that his foreign policy is shot. The Middle East is, is worse than it ever has been, and he said uh, uh, even uh, not long ago that Yemen was one of his models of, uh, of, of good uh, terrorism <laughs> fighting, you know? So, uh, <clears throat> I'm sorry, you know, I had to laugh about Yemen. He said, what did he say that, about two months before Yemen blew up? I don't think it was even that, brother. It was pretty close <laughs> to that, yeah. 
Yeah, and so, you know, their grabbing at straws. Uh, everyone recognizes anyone that's looking and watching. Trouble, not only in this country, but around the Middle East especially. Uh, you know, along with the news tonight, and uh, just, just two or three headlines, uh, just within a, a period of 10 minutes, did you hear about the terrorists who went into a Kenyan university and separated the Christians from the others and killed 147 and injured 70 or so? This is just uh, recent news here a few hours ago. Uh, the uh, terrorist al-Shabaab, I guess, were the ones that went in and uh, I saw the, killed. I saw the headline, but I didn't yes. get the details. So tell me, tell me again about that. What happened? Well, they went in uh, with, with some mass gunmen, as uh, your usual, usual protocol, and uh, went into a Kenyan university, and they separated the Christians. They found out who the Christians were, and they separated from the others, and they killed 147 of them and injured 70 or so. That is another headline. Today in this country, they arrested a couple of lawmaking women in their you know, late 20s, early 30s, who had big plans to create havoc on America. And they were, they were getting things together, uh, bomb-making materials, um, who were loyal to al-Qaeda here in this country. So, you know, I think, think that if you just look around uh, America and you're seeing all of these lone wolves, as I'm referring to, as uh, being caught. Uh, but how many are being caught and how many are not being caught? Uh, they arrested an American in Pakistan also today who was instrumental in having both his hands and coordinating an anti-American plan to attack this country. They arrested him over there. He's from America. So uh, you can be guaranteed that if the scripture says that the, that the, the great nation of America is going to fall, and we're going to probably not get into the great horn tonight, but uh, I do want to look at some specifics of, uh, of the prophecy that we have been sharing, which I have kind of just done on a surface level. But tonight I want us to look a little bit deeper into prophecy uh, Daniel. As you and your listening audience are aware, I've been extremely uh, interested in these prophecies for, you know, 25 years or so. And, of course, there are a hundred other prophecies that were recorded by the prophets of old, but Yeshua singled out the prophet Daniel and tied his writings into the end. And in the last month, the news has lined up to verify that, indeed, in my opinion, the time has arrived for the unfolding of the war between the West and Iran. And this is the prophecy found in Daniel the 8th chapter, and through my study, I recognize that the catalyst of the Earth's unraveling will start with this war, brother. And my focus for this evening will be on the Ram of Daniel 8, and take a closer look at the details of what will bring this war together that will eventually pull the whole world into it. But before I get started, I'd like to say a couple things, brother, about specifics of prophecy and how important it is to understand even the, the small details. Um, that okay. don't seem to have much occurrence, you know, or much importance. But every little detail is important when you when you try to uh, put an interpretation on it. And uh, one thing that uh, amazes me, Pastor Dan, about prophecy is prophets convey. Uh, which appears to be little details, are nonetheless important clues. And if you're just reading the prophecy on, on the surface, you're going to pass over some important things that appear to be insignificant, but you'll miss the details that will help you to identify and locate that which is written. Uh, but to look at the smaller details as necessary will increase your awareness in what you're looking for when the prophesied event takes place. Does that make sense to you? So, for a moment, let me give you 
you an example of this. Uh, let's use the prophecy foretold of the Messiah Yeshua for a minute uh, as an example. For those who were teachers in Israel in Yeshua's day, there were many details that if they would have had Yahweh's spirit and examined the details, they would have known the Messiah when he showed up. They would have known better. Uh, let me give you an example of what I mean. Putting the specifics together bring a more comprehensible picture to what to look for. And so in the prophet Micah's writings, he specified the Messiah's birthplace very clearly. He said, Bethlehem, though you be a little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me a ruler in Israel, whose going forth have been from old, from everlasting. And then another prophet shows up, and he says something about uh, a connection to the Messiah. The prophet Malachi gave another specific detail. He said, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. So common sense would dictate an inquiry as a specific or pondered. Uh, for example, what, uh, how many men have been born in Bethlehem, and, and one man, and how many has a forerunner prepared for his way together? So you're putting these two details together. Then the prophet Zechariah uh, prophesied that we would rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, the daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king comes as he is just, and having salvation, lowly riding upon a donkey into Jerusalem. Evidence adds up as one puts the details together. The question is then, one man and how many who was born in Bethlehem and who had a forerunner sent before him entered into Jerusalem as a king riding on a colt on the pole of an ass. Then Zechariah prophesies, and one shall say, What are these wounds in thine hands? Then he shall answer, Those with which I was wounded within the house of my friends. Wow. Then you start putting these details together. This really gives you a larger picture of what to look for, and the picture becomes clearer. One begins to ponder one and how many, the world over, has been betrayed by a friend, and that betrayal has resulted in being wounded in his hands. So as you're putting all these pieces together, you're getting a larger picture. Uh, here's another prophecy of the same prophet. He says, and I said to them, if you think good, give me my Christ, and if not, forbear. So they wait for my peace, 30 pieces of silver. Now, this wasn't 30 pieces of gold or 25 pieces of iron or anything. This was exactly 30 pieces of silver. And so as you study the prophecies, they're very specific in what would appear to be very small details. But when you add all of the little details together, you get a big picture. Here another prophecy. The Lord said to me, cast into the potter a goodly price that I prize of them. And I took the 30 pieces of silver and cast them to the potter in the house of the Lord. So... Every detail builds on another, where you cannot mistake the clear picture of what you're looking for. One man and how many, after receiving a bride for the betrayal of a friend, had returned the money, had it refused, had it thrown on the floor in the house of the Lord, and then had it used to purchase a field for the potter. And then uh, Prophet Isaiah joins in, and he gives another detail of it. He says he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened on his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as sheep before his shears, is come, and he opened not his mouth. So in pondering this detail, one man, in how many, after fulfilling all the uh, prophecies I just spoke of, when he is oppressed and afflicted and is on trial for his life, though innocent, will make no defense for himself. And then King David says a prophetic revelation, For dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me, they pierce my hand and my feet. And so you ponder, one man in how many, from the time of David on, has been crucified. 
I think you get the picture, don't you, Brother Dan? What I might add before I go on here is that the Messiah Yeshua had uh, all of these fulfilled in himself, and uh, 300 overall prophecies were literally met by this one person. Put those on, yeah. Peggy, hey? Amen. Amen. And we're coming up on Passover. We, we celebrate uh, his death as he told us to. Fourteenth day at midnight, they were delivered out of Egypt. First day, fourteenth day, first month, fourteenth day, they began to enter into the promised land. And first month, fourteenth day, uh, fifteen hundred years later, Yeshua is hanging on a cross. And so these times uh, are, are important. And uh, I think a lot of people ignore uh, the, the times and the seasons. Also, brother, what do you think? They should know the times and the seasons because that's what the word says. It says, for you are not children of the darkness, for you should know the time, you're children of the light, that you should know the times and the seasons. Yes, sir. And, brother, the season is upon us, and that is a season of harvest. I believe that uh, God is putting together his harvest, and I believe it's going to be reached here pretty soon. And uh, the evidence is the prophecies and the details that, that specify that, uh, and the time prophecies which are attached these things. So when Yeshua spoke of the prophet Daniel, and I began to look at the details over 2,500 years ago, I recognized that the first thing that would happen in the, the scope of uh, the, the world coming, uh, falling apart and then coming together through the, the Antichrist would be this vision of Daniel chapter 8. And uh, this uh, talk uh, is entitled The Ram is Dominating the Middle East. So what I'm trying to say is if you know the details thoroughly, You'll recognize it when you see it in front of you, and most of the time, not until then. But at least you know what you're looking for because you know the, the, the scriptures well enough to know what you're looking for. And then when you see them, then you can draw, blow the trumpet and sound the alarm. Uh, so let's focus uh, this evening, Pastor Dan, on details of a few verses of prophets, uh, the prophet's vision in Daniel 8 and pay attention to details and see if we are viewing in the Middle East uh, anything that has any relevance to this prophecy. And I'm going to share some news with you that will confirm this. Well, let's look at the uh, the verses itself I want to center in on. And that's found in Daniel 8, uh, verse, chapter 8, verse 2 through 4. And I'll read it briefly. Looking the vision, looking, I was in the citadel of Susa, which is in the province of Elam. And I looked in the vision, and I myself was beside the Uli Canal. Here's the details. Then I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a ram which had two horns. Of any other, and the longer one was coming up last. Another detail. I saw the ram budding westward, northward, and southward, and no other beast could stand before him, nor was there any to rescue from his power. But he did as he pleased and magnified himself. There is a mouthful of details in these uh, select verses. So what I like to do for a moment is do an exegesis on these select verses and try to define a few statements about the Rand's identity, geography, and activities that capture the attention of others and usher in the wrath from countries coming from a certain direction. Uh, what do you think about that, brother? Does that sound good to you? Geographical location is at the ancient Uli, 
which is now the modern-day Karoo River. The ram is standing at the border of Iraq and Iran. Very specific detail. You nor I have to guess and, 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 and see something secret in this. It's uh, a geographical location. So the ram is standing uh, at the confluence of the Tigris and Euphrates Rivers at a certain river that goes out into the Persian Gulf, right there in between Iraq and Iran. So we know where the ram is. This is a specific detail, and we do not have to guess about where he's standing. X marks the spot. Also, by the testament of Daniel's writings, we see in Daniel 8 and verse 20, as Gabriel gives the interpretation, a very specific detail. The ram which you saw, which had the two horns, represents the kings of Media and Persia. Persians were in what is now the modern-day Iraq and Iran when Daniel wrote his visions down. Students of history acknowledged the details of the emergence of Darius and Cyrus, which came into Babylon and took out their kingdom and inhabited its land. So there's a historical record and a geographical pinpoint as to where the ram began to, uh, to grab attention. So by the testimony of Daniel's writings, that, that, uh, that this involves Iran and Iraq. Now, an additional detail. The focus on the ram concerns two horns. Higher than the other, the higher one comes up after the first. This indicates that one country will have the attention on the theme, and then a larger or more powerful country will come in after the fact and join in with the first country. Subsequently, hey, I'm sorry, Steve. We're going to have to break in. I let you go too long. We're going to break in about uh, 30, uh, well, about a minute. Uh, maybe you should give your website real quick. So. It's no problem. I should have bumped you before now. Sherwoodprophecy.org. I'll let you know the, the listeners know I put some uh, presentations on YouTube and just to look up Sherwood of Prophecy. And I have full length presentations there. I have the Jerusalem uh, presentation, Daniel presentation, and a couple of. I uh, just put the Rapture Left Behind presentation on there. You will really enjoy that one. So, uh, bless you, brother. 